Good morning. I will read the introduction to the letter of Paul to the Philippians. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to God's holy people in the Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Well, welcome to this first Sunday of 2020. Or if Paul were here, he might say, welcome, saints, grace and peace. That's probably how he would begin his message. I want to give you a bit of an overview of um, quite a ways out. Sometimes I don't give you an overview that's this long, but I thought maybe today I would. We begin today a mini-series, because it won't be that long, on the book of Philippians. And that will take us up to the season of Lent, at which time we're going to do a series on the Lord's Prayer. And then following that, I've been here for 21 and a half years and I've threatened to do this for a long time. I'm not promising to do it this time, but I'm really thinking about starting a series after Easter on the book of Revelation. Now, yes, (laughs) some people think it's a great idea and other people say, why do you have to stir up more controversy, right? I'm not sure what it's going to be, but I'm inclined to teach from that book because I never have before. And because, as the introduction to the book says, blessed are those who read this book or study it. So we'll probably go there. But at the beginning of the new year, we start with the book of Philippians. And it is interesting, the opening lines to the book of Philippians, there's a way in which they are really predictable and ordinary, and another way in which they're rather extraordinary. Let me read them again. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus to all God's people, in Jesus Christ at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that sounds actually rather ordinary. It seems to be very similar, not only to the way Paul introduces most of his letters, but it is quite similar to the way letters were introduced in the Greco-Roman world. So there's something about it that's just ordinary. But there's something about it that's extraordinary as well. Not only does he call everyone who reads the epistle saints, he begins just following the statement on grace and peace to launch into a prayer of thanksgiving. And then, for the rest of the book, in its entirety, he writes what is later called 
uniformly the epistle of joy. Now you say, why is that extraordinary? Well, when you know a text very well, I guess nothing is extraordinary because you know it. But what I think is extraordinary about it is that he was pinning it from prison. He was in prison. It was near the end of his life. His circumstances were extremely difficult. He had every reason in the world to be grumpy and morose. And he had every reason in the world to attack his critics. And he did not. Instead, he wrote an epistle of joy. There are things about joy that you might say are things that challenge your joy. If I said to you, let the joy of the Lord be your strength, you might say, it's difficult, Bob, to always have the joy of the Lord. And it might be that you say, it's difficult because there's all these challenges to joy. And one of those challenges to joy that you might identify, and I certainly have identified, and I think Paul identified, is circumstances. Circumstances are a challenge to our joy. I wonder, I don't know the answer, but I wonder, I wonder what Paul's expectations concerning his life were before he finally found himself in prison. I wonder if he thought to himself while imprisoned, hoping to get out, but we know he never did. I wonder if he thought to himself in prison, life hasn't turned out the way I expected it. It's not as though he hadn't been through these circumstances before, but maybe he had other expectations. Maybe he thought to himself, I had dreams. I had dreams for my ministry, and they've not really come true. Maybe he thought to himself, I had dreams for my churches, that they were going to be huge And they were going to be a people that got together on the canopy of the grace of Jesus Christ and had no conflict. We know that's not true for Paul. I wonder what his expectations were. Or to put it another way, I wonder if his expectations were a lot like yours and mine. I wonder if he said to himself, I didn't expect this. Sometimes, even the words of encouragement I give to others, I have trouble owning for myself. Philippi, by the way, the church that he wrote to, was founded in a miraculous way. But the miraculous founding of the church in Philippi came through conflict and pain. It was miraculous. But it was awful. Paul and Silas went to Philippi and began to simply proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
a young servant girl that was possessed by a demon and used by wealthy people to make money for them with fortune telling ran behind them screaming out, these are servants of God, listen to them. Actually, there was nothing wrong with what she said. It was who she was, who owned her, and how she said it. And Paul rebuked the evil spirit that was upon her and freed her from it. And she was delighted, as you might expect. No longer subservient to wicked men and an evil spirit, she was free. And what was the outcome of that? The outcome was that the people got angry, especially those who owned her. And before it was over, Paul and Silas were thrown into a jail. Not just imprisoned, but beaten. Beaten within an inch of their life, as the phrase goes. And thrown into jail. And while in jail, they sang praises to God. And during the night, the jail was rocked by an earthquake. Divine intervention. And the doors were flung open and Paul and Silas were standing there at the edge of the door. And you know the story, but hear it again. The jailer comes running because he realizes what has happened. And he's about ready to fall on his own sword because a Roman soldier always had a sword. He reached out, as it were, to fall on his sword. Why? Because he didn't want to be killed by someone else. He knew his death sentence was right around the corner because the captives were free. And Paul says, stop! Don't do it! Yes, the doors are open, but we're all here. I also wonder something else. When the doors were flung open, did Paul say to the prisoners, don't, don't leave, just stay put. And that jailer fell to his knees in gratitude and in thanksgiving. And he said, I fill in the gaps here. He said to Paul, I know who you are. He said to Paul, I arrested you. And I know your message. So how, sir, can I be saved? How can I be saved? And Paul says, very simply, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And you'll be saved. And he and his whole household were baptized. That's quite a way to start a church in Philippi, isn't it? I bet you he didn't want to do it again. I bet he thought, God, the next church I start, let's not do the beating thing, okay? Let's just have a great church. I'm sure his expectations never matched his reality. Right now, he's in prison. He's near the end of his ministry. The circumstances are challenging. He doesn't have a big assignment. He's got no cushy retirement. He's in prison, separated from his churches. And many of the churches 
that he established are having struggles, mighty struggles. Just read his other epistles. And though he doesn't know it, but this imprisonment, it's not going to end in a miraculous way where he's released. It's going to end by him being beheaded. And in the midst of those circumstances, Paul writes an epistle named the Epistle of Joy. So what challenges our joy? Circumstances, like Paul. Something else that challenges our joy is people. Right? People challenge our joy. I don't remember where I saw it. It was either a sign or maybe a bumper sticker that said, the more I learn about people, the more I like my dog. Have you ever seen that one? Right? Uh, People are unreasonable. People are deceitful. People betray us. People are just plain mean and self-centered and not trustworthy. People are like you and me. It seems that Paul has been all but forgotten by the people who pledged their loyalty to him. Oh, we know of people who still had a high regard for Paul, but we also know, according to Philippians and other church letters, that there were people who were doing their best to undermine his ministry. And in Philippians, he says, they're doing it. They're out there bringing me down and trying to bring down my work. Those are people who challenge my joy. He was deserted by many friends. He faced rivals of every sort. But he refused to allow the challenge of circumstances or the challenge of people to kill his joy. There's something else that challenges our joy. Not just circumstances and people. Status challenges our joy. You you know what I mean, right? You know how you want to be viewed. You know how you want people to respect you. You have an idea about who you are and what people ought to think about you. You have an idea about who you want to be and what your stature ought to be. And there's people all over the place, whether through circumstances or through particular statements, that do not give you the status you believe you deserve. They routinely disrespect you. And as a matter of fact, you have a lot of standards concerning your status. I mean, some of us, in terms of status, you know what we're trying to achieve? Well, popularity. Maybe some people's status is contingent on outward beauty. 
And not everybody thinks you're beautiful. Maybe some people's status is linked to power and control. Maybe some people's status is just completely self-centered. Just all about themselves. They're that awful word, narcissistic. Maybe some people's status is perfection. Maybe you spend all your time trying to achieve a perfect status. Maybe you spend all your time trying to be more righteous than the other person. Maybe you spend all your time trying to be perfect. Maybe you are overcome by perfectionism. Maybe that's your status. And all of those things, whatever they are, and you make your own list, all of those things can be something that robs you of your joy. Because if you don't measure up in one or more of those categories that you have decided is your status, then you're debilitated. You may be depressed. You may be overwhelmed. Because you're not living up to your expectations or others. And that kind of thing, my friends, can rob you of your joy. There's one more thing that I want to mention that can rob you of your joy, and it's just worry. Just worrying about everything. About your life. About how you appear. About what people think about you. Don't get upset with me, because this one will cut close. But worrying about your kids. That's okay, isn't it, Bob? Worry about your kids? I guess so. But isn't it also possible that worry about your children? is a form of control that just maybe you need to turn over to God? I'm talking about compulsive worry. It will rob you of your joy. And Paul knew it. That's why in Philippians 4 he said, I don't want you, saints, to be anxious about anything. Anything, Paul? No, I don't want you to be anxious about anything. Now, by the way, Paul wasn't a Teflon saint. He wasn't perfect. So if you and I had been in the room when you heard those words, or had he said them to you, you might have said to him, Paul, I've seen you worry before. And Paul might reply to you, Of course I have. I worry about my churches. I worry about people I love. But I can't be overcome with worry. 
Because if I'm overcome with worry, I have placed myself in the position of the chief control officer. In a way, I've placed myself in the position of God. So I cannot let worry suck the life out of me. Now, that, that's the difficult part. I, I think it's the part that most of us can relate to, and, and these themes are throughout the whole book of Philippians. But here's the good news. There are things that are contributors to our joy. And I believe Paul spells them out in a variety of ways in the book of Philippians. And the first thing that is a contributor to, contributor to our joy is becoming a servant. Yes, becoming a servant. Yes, rolling off the burden of status. Yes, rolling off the burden of worry. Yes, rolling off the burden of circumstances. Yes, rolling off the burden of people and becoming a servant so that your entire existence, your entire existence is focused on your master. We hardly ever use servant and slave the way they used it in the first century. And of course, our notion of service and slavery is colored by a horrible history in this country and in other places. But to be a servant or to be a slave in the first century with all its difficult problems, with all the ethical dilemmas associated with it, and there were those, to be a servant meant that you were not completely self-consumed. Why? Because your entire existence was to serve another. Now, a servant in the first century could be a very rather lofty position. Servant in first century could be a position of great responsibility. It could be, in effect, a, a manager of all the master's finances. It could be a person who was in charge of all the children's education. It could be a person who was in charge of the master's agricultural development which was the primary source of income for masters in that day. It could be that as a servant, you were a master architect or a doctor or a building supervisor, all for your master. Here's something else about the idea of becoming a servant in that context. If you're a servant to a master, the master protects and cares for you, for your every need. If you're a servant to a master, the purpose of your life is defined by the master. Now transfer that idea to Jesus Christ as your master. 
A master who we learn in Philippians chapter 2 became himself a servant. A master who we learn in Philippians 2 and in other places stood in our place. A master who put our interests ahead of his. A master who laid down his life for us. A master who gave us everything, everything, including our life. Becoming a servant to that master is the highest honor you could ever accept. Because you can't be betrayed. You can't be let down. You can't be abused. You can't be used. And in the end, you've got it all. Because you live eternally with the master that you love. So what contributes to joy? Becoming a servant to that master. Your whole life is redefined. Your whole purpose is redefined. Your entire existence is covered by the protection and the care of that master. What a joyful reality. What a contributor to joy, to being a servant. There's another thing that contributes to our joy. It's discovering a cause. Not creating my own cause, but discovering a cause. Which, of course, is what happens when we come to Jesus Christ and surrender to him as our master. His cause becomes our cause. We lose ourselves in him. We allow ourselves to be submerged beneath the torrent of the kingdom of God. And we're delighted to be carried on by it. Because we have discovered the greatest cause for the human race. The kingdom of God. Paul put it this way. I want to know Christ and the fellowship of sharing with his sufferings. And somehow, I want to attain to the resurrection of the dead. He also said in Philippians, my life is not my own. For me to live, it's Christ. And to die, it's gain. When I become a servant to Jesus Christ and his cause becomes my cause, I am not able to be defeated because I am linked to the eternal God of the universe. The cause is greater than me, says Paul, and for that reason, I don't get credit for it and I don't need credit for it. I have lost all sense of self-centeredness. I'm immersed in the cause of the kingdom of God. By the way, um, there's a, a compelling question that we've been trained to ask ourselves. And it goes something like this, and all at various forms. It, it goes something like this. What is my purpose in life? 
How can I be happy? What is it that I do best? What should be my goals? And if you haven't noticed the emphasis of my voice, there's one pronoun that always appears, me and my. What is my life all about? It strikes me in thinking about Paul and his life that Paul's primary question was not, what is my life all about? His primary question was, what has God given me to do? The focus was never Paul. Not what's my life all about, but what has God given me to do? Do you realize the universal nature of the question itself? What has God given you to do? It applies to everyone, everywhere, all the time. It applies to a parent. It applies to a child. It applies to an employer. It applies to an employee. It applies to people in ministry and those who are not necessarily in professional ministry. It applies to everyone. What has God given me to do? That's how I discover my cause. What has God given me to do? So ask the question tomorrow in the midst of the scurry and bustle of your day. What has God given me the opportunity to do? Right here. Right now, that seems to be the overwhelming question of Paul. So contributors to our joy are becoming a servant, discovering a cause, and third, focusing on a goal. Paul said, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on to the goal, the high prize of my calling in Jesus Christ. In other words, for Paul, everything became secondary to that goal. Now, don't rush to the conclusion that the secondary things are unimportant things. That's not what it means. Everything became secondary to that goal. That is to say, everything became a part of extending the goal itself. Every part of my life, which is secondary to the goal itself, find its meaning in applying that gift to the goal itself, in applying my finances to the goal itself, in applying my time to the goal itself, in applying my loves to the goal itself, in applying every part of my life to the goal itself. Yes, they're secondary. They're secondary because it's me. They're primary because they're applied to the goal. Whatever was to my benefit, Paul says, I count it a loss so that I may pursue Christ. There's a fourth one, and um, this is the last one, a contributor to joy. And that contributor contributor to joy is rejoicing continuously. It's probably the most famous passage, which I won't cover in this series, but I only refer to now. 
in Philippians chapter 4. Many of you know it by heart. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be made known to all people. Why? Because the Lord is near. Don't be anxious about anything. But in prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus our Lord. Rejoice always. That's a contributor to our joy. When? Always. Why? Because the Lord is near. The sovereign one has got all the details of your life in the palm of his hand. And what happens when you rejoice? The peace of God guards your heart and your mind. When I was thinking about this epistle and thinking about where Paul was in prison, I thought, grace and peace. Kind of a cliche, Paul. Kind of doesn't speak to your reality. I wonder, Paul, there might have been a better opening. And grace and peace. And writing an epistle of joy. But as usual, I came around. And I realized that Paul's introduction is appropriate for every situation. Grace and peace. Grace to you. The unmerited favor of God to you. To put it in another way, Paul wants you to receive the grace of Jesus Christ. Which means identifying him for who he is. Surrendering your life to him. Because he died for you. Paul wants you to receive the grace. And his implicit promise is that if you receive the grace, you will experience the peace. It's impossible not to. The peace, it comes because you're forgiven. And you don't deserve it. The peace, it's because you were an orphan. And now you're adopted. And Christ, as the scripture says, is now your elder brother. And God is your father. Peace. Because you've been given eternal life. And then you can say with Paul, for me to live is Christ. And to die is gain. If that's the center of our self-understanding, that's peace. So receive the grace. Rest in the peace. And you will experience joy. Let's pray.
Gracious Lord, we are um, so thankful that you called us. Sometimes we're so self-focused that we emphasize the fact that we came to you. And we did make that choice, but that's really not why we're here. We're here because you first came to us through the incarnation and through the moving of your spirit in our hearts. You called, and we heard your voice, and we came. So thank you, Lord, for that call. I pray, Lord, this morning that someone who is yet to hear that call will hear it today. That in the silence of these next few moments, in this sacred time of communion, they will hear your voice calling them. And they will say yes. It's so simple. Just say yes. And then, Lord, we'll be able to rejoice with them in a newness of life that they have just found. For those of us who have said yes already, Lord, may we say yes again. Because that is discipleship, to walk with you, to listen to you, and to continue to say yes. So give us your grace and help us to experience your peace and help us to express your joy. In the name of Christ our Lord we pray, amen.